Good evening. Welcome to The Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thanks, Garland. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. A group of U.S. citizens that were marked by a U.S.-funded Ukrainian website's infamous kill list are demanding a congressional investigation. The website Mirad Voretz is notorious for threatening so-called enemies of Ukraine and facilitating their assassinations. Joining us now to discuss this subject, we have Ray McGovern. He's a former CIA analyst and co-founder of Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity. Ray, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you. We also have George Koo. A journalist, social activist, and international business consultant, both of whom are on the list. George, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you, Garland. So let's start with you, Ray. I understand that um, your name's on the list and that a letter has gone out demanding a congressional investigation. Uh, Can you update us and your thoughts, Ray McGovern? I'm glad that this is being pursued. I don't feel any immediate threat that I will be assassinated, but that may just be because I'm a little naive. It could be that this is the first step to get you on the Tuesday list, the famous Tuesday list that Obama reviewed when John Brennan uh, listed the candidates for assassination that particular week. But I have no no real knowledge of that. What I object to, of course, is the notion that these guys are taking our tax dollars <laughs> to attack us as uh, what I've been called here, what do they call a pro-Russian troll, okay? Well, this is not new for me, and we could talk about this later if you like, but for seven years I've been called a, a pro-Russian troll by these same Ukrainians, and maybe I should be more scared, but I think they're going to hit Scott Ritter first and maybe George Koo, <laughs> because I'm such an old guy that I can't really – I can't really uh, worry so much about it. Actually, today's my birthday. Oh, well, well, happy birthday. Thanks. George, your thoughts? I'm a little, um, frankly, I'm a little befuddled as to why I even made a list among some rather distinguished company. Uh, Ray, besides Ray, there are many others much better known, including a senator, I believe, uh, and a current senator. And... uh, um, the only thing I can think of um, my gotten involved is I spoke at um, some of the uh, Schiller Institute events where we discuss um, not I, I wasn't so much involved in criticizing Ukrainians so much as that, you know, the United States with the through with the help of NATO actually push Russia and Ukraine into this war and the whole idea and object from the United States point of view is to use the Ukrainian blood to wear down the Russian military. And, and you know, certainly DOD Secretary Austin uh, came right out and admit that was part of the strategy. And I was surprised, frankly, that Ukraine took this rather, quote unquote, personally. And, uh, and I share uh, Ray's concern or lack of in terms of me being on a hit list. I'm actually older than you, I think, Ray, and so my time to go is probably around the (laughs) corner anyway. (laughs) 
Well, I don't know if it matters to either of you, but the both of you are on my friend list. So I just want to be sure that you guys are aware of that. Uh, but, you know, Scott Ritter, who was also on the list, uh, he wrote a letter to Chuck Schumer. And one of his points, he talks about the fact, he, he mentions that there are individuals in Ukraine who are receiving American taxpayer dollars that are involved in lists such as the one that you all find yourselves on. Uh, he talks about uh, Andriy Shapovalov, a Ukrainian civil servant whose salary was paid for by U.S. tax dollar money. He's uh, the head of the Ukraine Center for Countering Disinformation, and he published a list of 72 names of people he accused of deliberately spreading disinformation and refers to them as information terrorists. So, Ray, I'll ask you your thoughts about taxpayer dollars being used to fund entities in Ukraine that are engaged in this type of behavior, which basically means the taxpayer money is being used to circumvent the First Amendment of the United States Constitution. Well, I would say that's outrageous. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> they don't have to pay the Ukrainians to do this. Uh, check NPR. Check Terry Gross. She's calling Putin an unreconstructed communist. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's unreal. Sam Husseini has a good piece up there just quoting from this most recent thing. I mean, these people are incredibly naive, and that's the most charitable uh, interpretation here. You know, whiting why this out, um, the problem really is, uh, and I see it acutely, and I think others are perhaps seeing it, perhaps George will agree, um, the, the Russians are winning, okay? Uh, the Russians uh, just have another month or two to take complete control of the Donbass, and maybe we'll go into Odessa, okay? This is big news for which the American public is totally unprepared, having been told that the Russians are losing, okay? Now, the midterms are on November 8th. What happens when the Americans realize they've been sold a bill of goods, that Russia has pretty much won the military struggle? What's Biden going to do? Well, Biden, of course, will listen to what Blinken and what, uh, oh, uh, what is other Sullivan and those other guys will tell them. And they'll tell them, you got to escalate now. If you don't escalate before the election, man, we're, 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 we're going to lose. OK, that's what bothers me now. That Americans are totally unprepared for what's actually going on there. And uh, bright generals like, uh, what's his name, Ben Hodges, who used to command all American forces in Europe, he told uh, Amanpour just two nights ago, you know, by the fall, we'll have driven the Russians back to the pre-February 24 borders. I mean, what alternative universe is he living in? And yet that passes for sage advice by all these retired military that appear on CNN. And also, I dare say, uh, this fellow Austin, who may not know too much because uh, it's, a, it's a, a fool's errand to pursue a military war against Russia in Ukraine, unless you're prepared 
they use nuclear weapons. I hope it stops short of that. George Koo, same question to you. U.S. taxpayer dollars being used to attack American citizens. But, but, it, but it does show that when you allocate $300 million to wage a disinformation war, that, um, that you know it's bound to have some blowback, like um, funding the Ukrainians to pick on 72 Americans for saying bad things. Uh, and, and to echo Ray's point, you know, in the meantime, the way we Biden is salvaging the situation most recently is to send another $10 billion of uh, weapons to Ukraine to uh, to bolster, to keep them up fighting and, you know, until the last Ukrainian standing, I guess. But um, it, it's it's frustrating, as, as Ray is pointing out, you know. We have so little um, influence in getting the word to the American public and telling them what is really happening on the ground versus what they're being told by the mainstream, and the mainstream is being funded by the White House and the and the budget. Um, it's it's a tough tough role to hold. I'm, I'm not. Uh, I'm not as optimistic as uh, a Ray in saying in thinking that the uh, it's going to come home come home to roost after the midterm. I'm think I'm pretty sure that the Biden's uh, uh, henchmen will think of some other explanations to to gloss over for whatever things that supposed to happen didn't happen. You know, Ray, I think it's particularly concerning when you look at what's happened in the last several years, you know, since the Patriot Act. We look at this proposal for domestic terrorism laws and, you know, in which they, you know, literally labeled people as as violent domestic terrorism, uh, terrorists for, you know, information, for exercising their, their, their rights. When we look at things that have happened where they have literally said, well, we can now name an American citizen and a, a, a non- a uh, combatant, uh, you know, enemy and take all of their constitutional rights. Sadly, in a way, one could argue that this kind of aligns with the direction that the U.S. government has been going as far as the oppression of its own people and of, of you know, violating our, um, you know, civil liberties. Ray. Well, the surveillance and, and all this other stuff is, is outrageous. Um, what I'd like to point to here is that uh, there's a there's a parallel here with the Cuban Missile Crisis. Now, when the Russians tried to put medium-range ballistic missiles in Cuba, they provoked us. We were provoked, and Kennedy threatened nuclear war to answer that provocation. Now, at the time, I thought Kennedy was exactly right. Now. How about the Russians? Have they been provoked? Well, of course they've been provoked. And all the John McCain's in the world can say there was no provocation, but there was not only not only with respect to Ukraine, but with respect to Crimea, which is the last time I got into the Washington Post. Uh, no one mentions the coup in Kiev, which was the key to how things went down in in uh, in Ukraine. It was the most blatant coup in history, and it's on YouTube, for God's sake. So what I'm saying here is that there's an existential threat posed by Russian missiles in Cuba. We reacted strongly, 
to that provocation and luckily reacted and we talked to the Russians and, and, and it worked out. Okay. Now what's happened now? There's an existential threat posed by US missiles and other weaponry to the Soviet to, to Russia, okay? And they are acting against that provocation. And they were promised uh, on the 30th of December that there would be no medium range, what the Russians call offensive strike missiles in Ukraine. And that fell in a, in a, in a crack. And the first thing you know, uh, Putin is complaining that the promise made one to one on the telephone by President Biden on the 30th of December, 2021 was not honored and that there's no mention in any of negotiations of any of the U.S. position papers of that promise. So, you know, the Russians feel diddled. They felt diddled back in 1990 when we promised not to expand NATO. Now they feel diddled again on on uh, on the uh, so-called special military operation in, in Ukraine. And again, my fear is that Americans are so ill-informed on all this. Uh, this letter to the editor that I got in the Washington Post seven years ago was the only only thing that I could get in the Post. And what it said was, McCain is wrong. It's not unprovoked. It was provoked. And when you dissemble Washington Post and they printed this, I said, you know, this is common in the Washington Post. Uh, you say, quote, Putin had an early plan to annex Crimea. In a secret meeting on February 23rd, 2014, where it was decided to seize the Crimea Peninsula. Well, hello. <laughs> did you know what happened the day before? Uh, did you know about the coup in Kiev? Did you know about Ukraine's immediate promise to join NATO? Well, they knew about it, but they happened to leave it off. So, again, if Americans aren't better educated on this, and that's our job as I see it, then uh, we're in trouble deep when it comes to November and the midterms. And Biden is told, oh, the Russians are winning. They're really, really big. What's Biden going to be advised to do? Escalate. That's what he's going to be advised to do. And we could end up in a no good situation, as the Chinese like to put it. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. We've been talking with former CIA analyst and co-founder of veteran intelligence professionals for sanity, Ray McGovern, and George Koo, who's a journalist, social activist, and international business consultant. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. A whistleblower has alleged that the FBI slow-walked the Hunter Biden laptop investigation and refused to look into related corruption for a year after the device was in their possession. Joining us now to talk about this and more, we have Steve Porkinen. He's a national organizer of Action for Assange, and he's on rockfin.com on AM Wake Up. And I think he has another show. Steve, welcome back to The Critical Hour. 
Thank you very much, Garland. The other show is Slow News Day. Slow Go News Day on Rockfin. I always say Rockfin's just like YouTube, only better. <laughs> well, there's no free speech issues there, Steve. So let's go. So let's start with this. FBI agents were ordered not to probe Hunter Biden's laptop from hell, a GOP senator says. Uh, the U.S. Federal Bureau of Investigations told its agents not to prove first son Hunter Biden so-called not to probe first son Hunter Biden so-called laptop from hell for months. The New York Post has reported, Steve, I know you are shocked to hear that the FBI would act uh, on behalf of, uh, you know, the Democratic Party or any party or anything other than being just a pristine and just organization. Steve, gosh, the uh, the idea of the FBI interfering politically in order to to benefit the status quo or, uh, you know, unelected, unending bureaucracy is so far from my imagination that you would have to find something like, I don't know, like a Marvel series that you could just repeat over and over and over and over and over to compare it to. This is highly predictable. But it's one of those things, guys, where, I mean, is it, is it just they're coming out and saying it now because they can, because nobody's going to follow up on it to any sort of degree of legitimacy? Because this is stuff that anyone who was paying attention at the time did know well over a year ago. We knew what was on the laptop. We've all been able to look at it for months and months and months, if not for almost two years since the National File article dropped on it. So it's, I mean, yes, of course, the FBI withheld information on this, sat on it and didn't do it. They're doing the same thing to Seth Rich's laptop to this day. And it's interesting that this is kind of like a volleyball, (laughs) that depending on uh, who you talk to from, from which side of the aisle, it just keeps going back and forth. But at the end of the day, what should, as you just articulated, should be very obvious. And since the FBI is supposed to be a a politically independent agency, that this should not be an issue. But obviously, the the whole uh, politicalization of this whole thing has taken control, not only as it relates to Hillary Clinton, but as it relates to Biden and as it relates to the other laptop as well. Well, and, and laptops and emails and servers were certainly front and center of the 2016 election. The last thing that the DNC would want is a repeat of that. The last thing they would want is another you know, questionable FBI probe heading into an election with a, an already, let's be generous and say, um, sleepy Joe Biden, uh, <laughs> as opposed, you know, um, but I, so, of course, there were massive political advantages to not do what the basic tenets of the law required them to do, that only people in positions uh, of ultimate authority within the organization would be able to give as directives to say, you can't do this. No, I know it's your job. No, don't do your job. There's allegations by these whistleblowers, and even that is an entirely different politically motivated story, but allegations by the 14 whistleblowers or whatever, uh, of them falsifying reports and finding ways to kill time so that they wouldn't have to do the basic functions of their job. I think at one point, Joe Biden was thought to be the commissar of Ukraine, correct? So. One one would think with all of this conflict in Ukraine, 
somebody should be looking into what was Joe what was Joe Biden's involvement. Well, and that's where the 10 percent of the big guy comes in. Uh, and that's <laughs> I mean, it's fun when you see it trending on Twitter, but uh, you, you doubt that there will be any sort of conclusion uh, in the justice system. Go ahead, Carl. I'm sorry. No, here's the here's the other thing I think that's, uh, that, that I, I'd like to get run by you. And I think it's important. During the towards the end of the Trump administration, one of the times that Donald Trump was impeached was when he called Volodymyr Moyer, Moyer, whatever the heck his name is, Zelensky, and said, "Look, Biden's up to no good. Hunter Biden's up to no good, and uh, you, we need. I'd like you to do an investigation into them in Ukraine." Right. At the time that that happened, it was like panned by the uh, mainstream media as crazy conspiracy theorists, Russian bot activity, et cetera, right? But we now find out that at the time that Donald Trump was being impeached for this crazy conspiracy theory stuff, the FBI had the laptop at that time, and they knew, in fact, that Hunter Biden was up to no good in uh, Ukraine. Yet they didn't come out and say, well, you can't really impeach him because uh, yeah, there's, there's a whole lot of meat on that still left on that bone that he's pointing to. Instead, they kept their mouth shut and pretended as though it was just a crazy conspiracy theorist, which is makes them complicit in it, what clearly now is a uh, a president being impeached in an instance where it really shouldn't have happened, and he was actually pointing to something that was obviously legitimate. Your thoughts? Speaks to the desperation and the hubris of the neoliberal establishment, where they are quite literally willing to risk being caught impeaching a sitting president under false pretenses. Uh, and yet they not only went ahead and did it, they tied multiple election and re-election campaigns to it. There's a whole I, I, there's a whole economy based off of Trump conspiracy now. And we know we knew in real time we had the video that we played, that Jimmy Dore played, that a number of other people played of Joe Biden bragging at the Council of Foreign Relations how he shut down an investigation into the company in which his son was oddly a highly paid board member of, that we now know because of these emails, Joe Biden was getting kickbacks from. Uh, so, I, okay, I, I don't know what anyone expects the outcome of this to be, but there is crystal clear proof that uh, people in elements of the Democratic Party and of uh, a number of different uh, federal investigative bodies, agencies, law enforcement, and so on, knew, engaged in, and helped cover up multiple crimes and allowed for the false impeachment of the president. That's wild. <laughs> so as a citizenry, what are we to do? Because on the surface, people would say, well, it's a leadership problem. We just need to replace the person in charge of the FBI. But historically, what we know is that it's a corrupt organization. Systemically, it's a corrupt organization. So they lie in FISA court applications for warrants. They invade uh, organizations like the uh, African People's Socialist Party. What are we to do with a corrupt organization that is supposed to be 
the top law enforcement agency in the country. Remember the the film Lean on Me, where they mm-hmm. chained the door shut. They wouldn't let anybody in until they got some problems solved. We need to do that, but with every place that you could possibly go vote, we we just need to chain the door shut and stand on the outside and say nobody gets to go in. We do bank runs and we do tax strikes, but outside of that, I really do. You know, there's lots of things you can do with parallel structures and counter economies. But I mean, ultimately, gentlemen, that's what it's going to take because they're going to use this as a political football with the the end zone not being justice, but in getting their particular political supporters and and actors into those positions. That's all the fortune whistleblowers thing is about. What, uh, the targeting of the uh, the Uhuru group, the the African um, People's Socialist Party. The, the all that saying is that the FBI is never going to be done as its stated mission twenty, forty, sixty, a hundred years ago to stop any sort of leftward movement in the country to stop any sort of organization around worker centered movements or around movements that would allow for uh, less uh, imperialism, less, uh, less, you know, a de facto exportation of terrorism in the guise of empire expansion. That's what the FBI is there to do. They're supposed to shut that down. You know, I'm, I'm kind of rambling. I'll stop. No, you're making sense. And, I, and let me add this with the horror movement. And, and this is why, you know, I, I, we compare, put things together. One of the interesting things I found was that all of this information from that raid showed up immediately in the New York Times and the Washington Post. So clearly someone involved in that was part of the information war. The FBI is part of the information war. Now we look at what's happening with the Trump raid, right? And what do we see? All this inside stuff going out. Remember, Comey, he goes and talks to Trump and then releases all the information underground to the FBI. So the FBI, not only is it an organization to stop the left, et cetera, but it's now openly a part of the deep state information war. Your thoughts? Without a doubt. And this ties into other conversations that we've been having since February or early March where the State Department is saying we're openly engaging in an information war and psychological operations on not just the Russian people, but on anyone within our media space. And so we're just letting you know. We're just letting you know. We're just throwing it out there. Um, You don't know what we're showing you. And it's not up for you to decide. It's for us to determine how we're best going to manipulate this narrative to our outcome. And this is something that our government has flat out come and said to us. And still, you know, we're we're not we're not chaining the door shut. Um, <laughs> I, it's it's wild to me. This is truly fascinating that that they're just being this brazen with it. And as they say in this Black Agenda report piece, these witch hunts are not new. They go back to the Palmer raids of Woodrow Wilson's administration, the anti-communist attacks on Paul Robeson and Claudia Jones, the COINTELPRO program. History is just replete with the FBI involved, to your point, uh, Steve, in anti-leftward leaning interests in this country. And for the most part, all these organizations have tried to do is uh, get America to be America. 
Yeah, without a doubt. It, 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 the, the FBI got their cues from the Pinkertons, which in and of itself was have law enforcement, have union busting organization. The, the, the history of any sort of worker-based movement being infiltrated, destabilized, or either overthrown or just you know, self-imploded uh, is almost as old as well, any sort of uh, you know, post-slavery organized labor in the nation. So it, it's not like we should be surprised by any of this, but what we should be doing, as Garland suggested, is making the connections where they're so blatantly obvious. The, the Russiagate tie-in with the, uh, with the Uhuru group, the fact that they're still trying to beat that narrative to death so that they can make you look the other way from Hunter Biden's laptop or, or you know, not notice that we're giving the entire U.S. Treasury away to whoever wants to rob 70 percent of the weapons that we keep <laughs> sending into Ukraine so that we can go fight terrorism wherever those weapons show up next. Well, there's there's a new 70 percent, Steve. I don't know if you've been reading about it. The Ukrainian um, Rada, which is their Congress, has voted to give themselves a 70 percent raise. So 70 percent of the weapons go probably into their pockets and get sold on the black market. They're giving themselves a 70 percent raise, which is easy for them to do because <laughs> we pay their salary. We've been talking with Steve Poikinen. He's a national organi- organizer for Action for Assange. He's also the host of Slow News Day and AM Wake Up, Rockfin.com. You're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There is more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. The U.S. has detailed its largest ever weapons package for Ukraine. Also, as Azov Nazis go on trial in eastern Ukraine, their benefactors seem concerned that their crimes may be exposed. Joining us now to discuss this and more, we have Mark Sloboda. He's a Moscow-based international relations security analyst. Mark, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Garland, Dr. Leon, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the show. Yeah, we got to start off with Nazi trials. Washington is afraid that crimes committed by Ukraine's Azov neo-Nazi regiment could come to light during the International Tribunal for War Criminals in Mariupol, the Russian embassy to the U.S. has said. The embassy noted that the upcoming tribunal against Ukrainian war criminals, which is being prepared by the DPR authorities, would hold neo-Nazis accountable. Your thoughts? What do we know about the upcoming trials, Mark Sloboda? Well, first of all, it's rather interesting, of course, that the Kiev regime has already put on trial Russian prisoners of war uh, that it captured in its own sham trials uh, in Kiev. And uh, there was uh, loud applause uh, from Washington. Uh, Now, that um, the uh, Donbass republics uh, with Russia um, uh, defeated um, the uh, Azov neo-Nazi death squad that is armed and funded by the U.S.-funded Kiev regime um, and uh, dares uh, to put them on trial for their war crimes, uh, I think, 
even more importantly, their crimes against the people of eastern Ukraine, particularly Mariupol, uh, suddenly there is there is outrage. Um, and uh, I, I think that tells you pretty much everything you know about uh, need to know about this conflict uh, in a nutshell. Um, uh, trials of neo-Nazis bad because that gives us uh, attention uh, to the nature of these um, exactly who is fighting for the Kiev regime um, and uh, will seriously damage um, the uh, narratives that are being put forward about it uh, when they testify on the stand because um, I have no doubt that there will be those among them who will be naming names of um, officials in Kiev in the regime um, who were ordering or greenlighting uh, certain things that are definitely fall into the realm of atrocities and war crimes. One of the things that I find interesting, uh, Mark, in this article is the DPR leader, Dennis Pushelin, says that they're going to face an international tribunal. So do you have any insight into that? Yeah, I, I think that that is uh, somewhat exaggerated. Uh, obviously, not too many countries recognize Donetsk and Lugansk as independent countries. But if it was Donetsk and Lugansk and, let's say, Russia, um, that is technically international. So um, I'm not expecting any greater um, uh, participation from uh, other countries in this. So let, let's just simply say that uh, calling it international is uh, might be considered as an exaggeration by those who don't recognize the Donbass republics as independent countries. Here's another article. Um, uh, interesting. Ukraine envoy criticizes Pope over comments on Russian killed by car bomb. Uh, here's the question, Mark. Is the Pope going to go on Ukraine's Mirovitz kill list of enemies of uh, Ukraine? I I mean, with, you know, such luminaries as John Mearsheimer, Roger Waters, Henry Kissinger, you know, I mean, he's got his own crimes, but I'm not so sure that he's committed real <laughs> any real crimes uh, against Ukraine in this regard. Um, you know, um, there's I mean, the, the, the list of people uh, on this uh, kill list uh, uh, officially curated by the Ukrainian government um, and hosted, it must be said, on NATO information servers um, in uh, the West. Uh, in in Brussels and, and so forth, um, I I don't know if the Pope will end up on there, but uh, if he doesn't, I'm sure that he at least holds an honorary place on there, uh, in the minds uh, of the uh, ultra nationalist, the Banderite fascist battalions uh, in Ukraine. Um, it's rather interesting to hear the Kiev regime say we had nothing to do with the terrorist attack that killed Daria. Dugana, and then out the other side of their mouth, how dare you condemn her killing to the Pope? <laughs> um, I, I'm, something doesn't quite as, uh, add up there. You think they would at least, at least fall on the side of, of not saying anything about the Pope's condemnation of the killing of a 29-year-old girl uh, in a car bombing. But, um, you know, 
it is what it is. I mean, uh, what, what is it that Zelensky said about Azov? They are what they are. And it's interesting, too, when you think about or look at exactly what the Pope said, which was innocence pay for war. That poor girl thrown in the air by a bomb under the seat of a car in Moscow. I mean, that's true. And so, you know, it's not as though he took a political position. It's not as though he took a side. He's a religious leader that really, I think, looked at the morality or immorality of the act. It wasn't a political position. Yeah, let me let me interpret Kiev's re- remarks on 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 the Pope's remarks. You know, what they said effectively says we do not consider her innocent. She deserved to die, but we didn't kill her. <laughs> right. You know, pinky swear. Right. I mean, that's that, that's what they're that that's what that is saying there. They are they are angered at the Pope's suggestion that she is innocent. Because she committed thought crimes, speech crimes, uh, you know, uh, against the regime in Kiev. As far as they're concerned, she is not innocent and she deserved to die. But we didn't have anything to do with her death. Pinky swear. Yeah, of course. You can tr- and you can trust Nazis. I mean, hey, they would they lie to us? Mark, has the United States spoken about this? Has yeah. the administration uh, issued a statement related to this? Yes, uh, they were asked about it, and they put out a statement saying that they uh, condemn the uh, killing of uh, civilians in uh, the Ukrainian conflict, no matter what their nationality, whether they're killed, uh, uh, you know, whether those killed are uh, uh, Ukrainians or Russians. Uh, it was late, and it was this kind of mealy-mouthed, um, uh, very vague and soft condemnation. But there was technically something there. Yeah. Uh, technically. UK's Johnson warns against talks with Russia in last trip to Ukraine SPM. This is not the time to advance some flimsy plan for negotiation, Joint said. Uh, 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 Boris Johnson said at a press conference with Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky. However, the funny thing is neither of them are sitting in a trench in Donbass with th- thermobaric missiles blowing up over their heads. But at any rate, they sound like real tough guys. Mark, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, we already have well reported in the Western press an acknowledgement that Boris Johnson went to Kiev and speaking for the United States and the United Kingdom, told Zelensky that they would not support peace negotiations, that he should not participate them, that they wanted war, war, and that if he went through peace negotiations, he would lose their support. I mean, I, I, and here he's just continuing this. There, there shall be no peace negotiations. Uh, you know, uh, please some more cannon fodder for the front. That's, that is what Boris Johnson uh, is has said uh, effectively and is continuing to say uh, in Kiev uh, in recent days. And he pledged a new weapons package worth about $64 million. 
They don't have a lot of details, but it includes 850 Black Hornet micro drones, which are about the size of a human thumb and can be targeted for target spotting. Yeah, um, I mean, these the primary use of drones right now in this conflict, of course, there are combat drones and so forth. But as this is a largely at the front lines and artillery and rocket system heavy war, a fires war, uh, to use the military terminology. Drones generally are uh, frequently used for spotting, for improving, identifying a target and improving accuracy. Um, And they're being used very effectively. Um, It is a fairly one-sided conflict uh, because the Kiev regime has, has freely admitted that they're, despite uh, you know, the amount of artillery that they have gotten from the West because of their own very, very heavy losses uh, in in what was a fairly substantial artillery um, uh, repertoire that they had at the beginning of this conflict, that they're now outnumbered 15 to 1. Um, and that goes as well for the drones, uh, you know, that help the spotting as well as for the artillery. These drones, I don't think that they're necessarily the most effective in that task. So let's just say that, you know, I guess something is better than nothing. Speaking of which, U.S. details its largest ever weapons uh, package for Ukraine, which uh, is going to be about $3 billion. Here's something I found uh, very interesting, too. I've been reading recently the Ukrainian uh, Rada, the MP there, effective parliament, Congress, whatever you want to call it, just voted themselves a 70 percent raise. And it's being paid for by U.S. tax tax dollars, of, uh, of course. So, I mean, that's pretty good. A 70 percent raise and they get three billion dollars in weapons. Wow. Mark, your thoughts? Well, first of all, I am absolutely sure that the American taxpayers paying what they are right now for gasoline at the pump are perfectly OK with the hard wa- the uh, hardworking uh, neo-Nazi uh, Ukrainian uh, Rada members like Andrei Belitsky, the founder uh, uh, of um, uh, Azov, um, uh, sitting uh, sorry right sector uh, sitting in the Ukrainian Rada. I, I'm sure that they are perfectly fine uh, with uh, them giving themselves a 70 percent pay raise in the middle of a war on the U.S. taxpayer dime. I'm I, I'm sure they're <laughs> fully behind that. I aren't you? I mean. Uh, not exactly. Okay. All right. Well, I mean, I mean, there might be a few, there might be a few dissenting voices, but come on, you're on Sputnik. What do you expect? I'm sure everyone else is completely fine with it out there in the audience. Um, all right. A little facetious there. Um, yeah, but, um, okay. So about the, the specifics of this arm package, it's not all that I hate to tell you. Um, I'm not so sure that all the numbers add up and that there may not be some things uh, included in that amount that aren't being publicly named yet. We've already seen that harm missiles, uh, these um, uh, anti-air defense uh, radiation seeking missiles uh, that that aren't quite actually as uh, effective as as their names might suggest. were not mentioned 
uh, in previous military package until their presence uh, on the battlefield in Ukraine was announced by the Pentagon. So they are not openly announcing everything that they're giving to the Kiev regime at this moment. But what we've seen on that list is actually kind of dragging, you know, the barrel here a bit. Um, They've given up on supplying HIMARS. It appears that 16 is the magic number, at least for now. They're not getting any more, and they haven't in the last uh, gotten any more HIMARS systems in the last uh, at least two, possibly this is three packages uh, since they were delivered. And supposedly, at least according to the Russian Ministry of Defense, half of those are already smashed. Um, but it does include ammunition for the HIMARS. Um, it in- includes ammunition for the M777s, uh, um, the howitzers, but no new M777 howitzers either. Instead, they're going down to another uh, a smaller round, uh, 152 millimeter um, round howitzer with um, also a lesser range. This is a step down in the the rain you know in the type of artillery and i think it speaks that the us has already given so much and it it knows that most of those systems are simply going to be wiped out pretty quickly once they're placed on the battlefield that they're kind of scraping the bottom of the barrel and what they're sending they're downgrading the weapons package in many terms uh, they're also including large uh, you know numbers of of uh a man portable uh, air uh, anti-tank and air defense systems, but they've already provided thousands and thousands of those, and they haven't had any real effect on the battlefield. In fact, recent U.S. military reports of actual U.S. military personnel well-trained in their use under testing conditions report less than 20% effectiveness with them. And that's even just in hitting, that's not talking in damage done. Uh, so on the battlefield by uh, Kiev regime troops that, that really don't uh, have proper training on how to use them, and according to Ukrainian medium reports, are looking for the instructions on how to fire these weapons on Google. Um, uh, again, uh, it's nice. It's better than nothing, I guess. Uh, but I don't think it's going to have a serious effect uh, on the conflict. We've been talking with Mark Svoboda, Moscow-based international relations security analyst. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. President Biden's student loan forgiveness program is being scrutinized by his adversaries and supporters alike. Many observers argue that the program should not be means-tested, the amount to be forgiven is far too small, and that it does nothing to address the fundamental problems with long-term student debt. Joining us to discuss this and more, we have Dr. Margaret Flowers. She's the co-editor at popularresistance.org. Dr. Flowers, welcome back to The Critical Hour. 
It's great to be with you both. The Hill uh, is uh, say is uh, uh, saying that President Biden officially announced on Wednesday that his administration is forgiving up to ten thousand dollars in federal student loan debt for borrowers making less than one hundred twenty-five thousand annually, and twenty thousand for Pell Grant recipients making the largest forgiveness of the loans per individual to date. Your thoughts on that, Dr. Margaret Flowers? Yeah, well, you know, he finally did something, didn't he? (laughs) I think he's feeling a lot of pressure with the midterms coming up. He ran on this as a campaign promise. I think he felt compelled to finally do something, but it's pretty cool what we see coming from the Democrats. It's uh, it's way too little. It's just a a few crumbs. It's going to help some people, but student debt in the United States is a massive problem, you know, with about $2 trillion in student debt, and it's keeping people from being able to participate in the economy, from being able to buy a, buy a home, start a family. And uh, so, you know, the, it's I don't know how it's going to play out in the polls this November. I, you know, I've, he could have easily just erased all of the federal student debt. It's already been paid for by the federal government. He could just forgive that, and that would be a huge boon for people. Margaret, what do you make to the opposition's, or what do you say to the opposition's uh, position that, oh, all this is going to do is uh, increase inflation, and you've got Larry Summers saying that, uh, oh, the president should not have forgiven the debt. The debtor should have filed for bankruptcy. Mm. Well, I think it wasn't Biden part of that, making sure that student debt couldn't be part right. of, yes. of bankruptcy. Exactly. But, but, you know, there are ways to control inflation. It's not what the United States is doing. You know, they're not taking appropriate steps to control inflation. But, you know, there's other ways that they could be doing it. This is a huge problem for people. I mean, $10,000 is really, for most people, it's going to be a drop in the bucket. The cost of a college education in the United States now is astronomical. People are walking out of college with the debt equivalent to a mortgage on a home. Uh, and it doesn't need to be this way. Our whole private, you know, our whole education system is being moved into just a big money thing with, you know, tons of administrators making a lot of money. The, the professors are being squeezed or moving into adjunct professors who are, you know, not being treated well, not being adequately compensated. It's it's our whole higher education system is going in a direction that is hurting the workers, hurting the students, enriching a bunch of people. And the whole thing really honestly needs to be overhauled. Well, bad news, Margaret. Our lower education system ain't doing so swell either. (laughs) Chicago, um, uh, in in Illinois, there's a number of teachers who are um, on strike because the heating and air conditioning doesn't work in the buildings. So the students either freeze or they burn up, but they're not going to be able to learn well. In addition to that, Congress just killed a bill that would allow that would have continued um, free lunches for kids that couldn't afford it in student loans with uh, in student in, in, uh, in uh, student cafeterias, which are unfortunately most students. And. They just gave another $3 billion to the Ukraine as the Ukrainian parliament, that's actually their rata, voted themselves a 70 percent raise. What we have now that used to be the United States, Margaret, is an impoverished war machine. Your thoughts? Yeah, no, 
it's, it's a plutocracy. And, that, you know, we've been saying that for a while and it just can't, you know, it, it seems like over and over again, it just becomes clearer and clearer that, you know, these are policies, these are intentional policies. They're intended to enrich the wealthy. They're squeezing people more and more. I mean, now we've got the Biden administration, Department of Health and Human Services, scheming about how they're going to start handing over COVID vaccines and treatments to the private hands and people are going to have to pay for it. No more is it going to be covered. And Medicare and Medicaid won't cover the vaccine because it's an experimental authorization. So it's just more more and more every day. The people are, you know, being denied the basic things that they need while we foment conflict around the world, feed the war machine. It's, it's uh, you know, I don't know how it can be any more stark and how it can be any more important that people recognize this and, you know, and, and take action to change things. I mean, how much lower can we go? Understanding that many will see the student loan uh, forgiveness as a step in the right direction, and you then add that with large amount of opposition to the woman's right to choose issue, is this going to do anything to offset what many people were foreseeing as uh, any, I'm going to use a political science term here, an incredible butt whipping that the uh, Democrats were going to suffer uh, come the midterms? Yeah, you know, it, it's hard to tell. I think that it may mitigate things a little bit for the Democrats. Uh, because they are so good. And especially, I mean, this is campaigns are run based on money, right? I mean, this is a huge money endeavor. And all they, they think that they really need to do is as it gets close to election time, they start whipping up the ads and getting people all riled up. And, you know, and, and they're going to use these issues and they're going to say how great they were that, you know, that they've, uh, you know, past the student debt or that the you know president relieves some student debt, they're gonna say how important it is that you elect us so that we can do something about the women's reproductive health. Uh, I'm sure that the the Biden administration recently responding to the um the the Iran, you know, the joint comprehensive plan of, of action, the, the Iran nuclear deal, that's another big win with voters. You know, people were very supportive of that when it when that was uh, finalized under the Obama Biden administration. So they're going to use all these little tiny things because they always do to try to manipulate people into voting for them. We'll see. It may mitigate things a little bit, but this is, you know, this is a very unpopular administration right now, an unpopular party. Well, you know, another thing about the um, this, this, you know, the student debt, even if they. Uh, you know, forgave all of it, which I'm all for. But here's the problem. It does nothing to address the system. In this system, first, they dramatically increased the price of co going to college, which wasn't an accident. And then they made everybody take out a loan. If you look at other countries around the world, people get free college. They see college as a way to better their workforce and better prepare their workforce for a technological future. In here, it's used as a way to prey on our younger population. And all of this, the to me, it's the wrong question. If you say, are you going to forgive student loans? That ain't the question. Are you going to stop a system that, of student loans that preys on our, on our, on our young, younger generation, Margaret? Quickly, Margaret, before you respond, when I taught at Howard, I happened to be talking to some exchange students from Libya. And I asked them, 
what what's the tuition what's college tuition cost in Libya they couldn't understand the question mm-hmm. why would you pay to go to college they didn't understand the concept of tuition why would you pay to go to school they they looked at me totally befuddled why would you do that so i just thought i'd go ahead margaret no, I mean, it's the same thing with healthcare around the world. Uh, you know, there are basic things that societies need to function. We need educated people who can, you know, build the projects and design them and, you know, do the things that we need to keep our country functioning. And so these are fundamentals that most wealthy nations cover completely because they the economy benefits multiple times over the investment that they make in keeping people healthy and educating them. But the United States is not about that. It's not interested in people. It's interested in what can I do if you're at the top to line my pockets, you know, and and so the wealth divide, you know, it's just obscene how much it's growing in the United States. And there's no real check on that in any way right now. So, um, you know, it's like, Interesting because my oldest son is doing his PhD outside in a European country, and he says all the people he talks to say, "Why would anybody go to the United States right now? You know, we're no longer the dream." Well, I got bad news for the Europeans. People ain't going to be going there much longer anyway because things no, are no. things are looking pretty bleak because they're following the United States right down the uh, the path of destruction. We've been talking with Dr. Margaret Flowers. At least Flowers. not in the wintertime. Yeah, well, particularly. Dr. Margaret Flowers is the editor of popularresistance.org. That's a website I go to every single day. You need to check it out. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. A British envoy has praised the Israeli bombing of Syria, arguing that, quote, it is the only thing that works, though he failed to clarify the goal to which he was referring. Also, the U.S. has bombed Syria, and Israel is working to kill the Iran nuclear deal. Joining us now to discuss this and more, we have Robert Fantina. He's a journalist, an author, and an activist for Palestine. Robert, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you very much. Let's start with the Iran nuclear deal. On Wednesday, Israeli Prime Minister Yair Lapid urged the U.S. and the EU to quit negotiations with Iran aimed at reviving the nuclear deal known as the JCPOA. It's interesting because I would say that the Iran nuclear deal works, but in reality it doesn't work because Iran's not trying to get a nuclear weapon anyway, so there's nothing to work. It's almost like you – know, have you ever heard the old joke where the, uh, the, the person is doing like this um, prayer to keep tigers away? And someone says, well, but there's no tigers within a thousand miles. And they say, yeah, that just goes to show that it's working. Right, right. Uh, your thoughts, Robert Fantina. Yes, this is a, a, the whole idea of the Iran nuclear deal is, as you said, kind of pointless because Iran has repeatedly said it's not looking for to make a nuclear weapon. Now, we must consider the fact, however, that two nuclear armed nations are threatening to attack Iran. So it's possible that the Iranian government may have a different thought about uh, developing nuclear weapons in order to defend their people. However, 
uh, the government of Israel has opposed this from the start. When Netanyahu was uh, prime minister and Obama first negotiated the uh, JCPOA, uh, Netanyahu came to Congress, U.S. Congress, and asked Congress to not approve it. So the government of Israel has been opposed to this from the start, uh, partly because Israel wants to be the only uh, nuclear-armed nation in the Middle East and wants to be the only strong nation in the Middle East. So the idea of having this, this agreement with the United States, which the United States violated once before, we'll have to see what happens. But I'm, I would think that Iran is going to make a number of significant demands to ensure that if the U.S. should, if the, if the deal is signed again and the U.S. violates it, there will be some, uh, some rewards, at least, for, for Iran. So Israel says that uh, yesterday that it received Washington's response to the EU's proposal. Uh, they're now reviewing uh, Washington's response so that it's part of the narrative is that we're closer to reviving this thing than we've ever been. Is it is it possible that through all of this back and forth, they can almost stumble into an agreement uh, as opposed to it just blowing up for some unknown reason at the very last minute? Uh, that, that is possible. But I think the government of Iran is going to be more careful than that. They're going to be sure that there are mechanisms in place to penalize the U.S. should it do what it did before. It's interesting, though, as you mentioned before, that uh, Israel received Washington's response to the EU proposal. What does Israel have to do with it? Israel is not a signatory of it. Israel has no no uh, part. In no, no, that was that was Iran. That was Iran that said it received Washington's oh, okay, response. On, yeah, on, right. No, Iran said they received Washington's response, and they are reviewing it. And so, actually, when, when I the the my question was not so much could Iran stumble into the into an agreement. My question was could the United States with all this back and forth and trying to put up this facade of actually negotiating, could the United States back itself into a corner and wind up almost having to, to do a deal because now they've left themselves no way out? Yeah, that, that is very possible. It will make certain demands. The United make certain demands. Iran can say, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll agree to those. And then the United States government will say, oh, I didn't know you were going to agree. <laughs> There you go. But there, there you go. There, there's no, there's nothing they can do. Yeah, that that is certainly a possibility. Let's go here, and this is interesting. Uh, the UK's envoy for Syria said Israel's bombing campaign is probably the only thing that works in Syria. Now, here's the question: works? That implies some goal. Well, if I say I'm trying to, I don't know, fix my car engine. Well, repa replacing the carburetor is the only thing that works. But I have to say what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to get the car running again. Now, here they say it's the only thing that works without actually coming out saying what the ultimate goal is. Your thoughts on that, Robert Fantina? We have to remember a statement that Hillary Clinton made when she was Secretary of State. She said the best thing the United States could do for Israel is destabilize Syria. That has not changed in the view of the United States. So the continued destabilization, certainly the United States talks about regime change, talks about uh, even if the, uh, the government stays as it is, uh, making some changes to their policies. But the idea of a stable, secure Syria is not in keeping with what Israel wants. And therefore, the bombing campaign being the only thing that works is 
to continue to destabilize Syria for the good of apartheid Israel. But Assad has like a, a 70 or 80 percent approval rating. So this seems to be another failed attempt by the United States uh, to foment unrest. And in their attempts to do so, they make the target of their uh, of their anger or ire even stronger. Yes, they do. The United States supports um, anti-government terrorist groups in Syria and has since the start, has for years, uh, causing untold suffering uh, of the Syrian people. Uh, there's, there's starvation, homelessness. The infrastructure is in shambles. Uh, but as you said, uh, Bashar Assad remains popular because the people know that it is not he who has caused these problems. It is not he who has uh, causes terrible destabilization of suffering. It's the United States. And rather than uh, the people of Syria opposing their own government, the hatred they feel towards the United States is only growing. Iran on Wednesday denied that it had any links to the groups that the U.S. targeted in airstrikes in Syria, contradicting a claim made by the U.S. military. Here's the interesting thing about that. What the heck is the U.S. doing in Syria? They weren't invited there. According to the U.S., we're concerned about independence of countries, sovereignty of Ukraine, the right of Taiwan and Ukraine to choose any allies. They want. All those things are important. And the United States is illegally occupying the Syrian oil fields and wheat fields and arbitrarily bombing whoever they want in Syria and saying, oh, yeah, they're allied with whoever uh, the, you know, uh, Iranians or Martians or whoever we want to bomb. Your thoughts on that, Robert Santino? Iran is seen by the United States government as the, the enemy, the big bad wolf, and therefore any association that it can make, true or false, with Iran justifies its violence. So in this case, the U.S. bombed these, these groups saying they were affiliated with Iran. Iran says, we have, we have nothing to do with these groups. But in the minds of the U.S. public, there's a link between these groups and Iran. And the U.S. government is telling them again and again and again that Iran is the enemy, Iran is the evil empire, et cetera, et cetera. And therefore, they can justify their continued violence. Now, the government of Syria has demanded on many occasions that the U.S. leave the country. As you said, it's occupying different parts of the country, has no right to be there. It's uh, complete hypocrisy. As you mentioned, the United States says, oh, everyone has the right to self-determination, except the Syrians and the Palestinians and, and again and again, the, the Yemenis. We can, we can list countless countries. So this is more of the hypocrisy of the United States in action, coupled with the violence that almost always uh, does accompany that, that hypocrisy. And according to the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, this group that was just under attack is actually a militia made up of mostly Shia fighters from Afghanistan. So it's almost as, it's almost as though the United States is just uh, trying to, with a blindfold on, pin a tail on a donkey, and, and they're just all over the room. And they're going to say every time, oh, we got in the right spot, uh, because they're, they're not going to admit to any any uh, error. I do want to mention the Syrian Observatory of Human Rights is not a credible organization at all. <laughs> it's a very uh, anti-Syrian organization uh, supported by the United States. But again, your point is well taken that the United States is simply going to say uh, whoever we're bombing is who we should bomb. No, but that's, but that's kind of why I brought it up, because they're making a statement that contradicts the country that is their primary benefactor. Yes. So again, the the convoluted 
words of the Standard Observatory for Human Rights uh, are are just typical. But yeah, we, we are seeing that it says that it's an opposition war monitor based in Britain, but it's it opposes the Syrian government completely. Absolutely. Um, and let me ask you this. What are your thoughts on the state of affairs with the whole Lebanon gas fields and Israel trying to, you know, that 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 issue with Israel trying to, you know, basically take the gas from the Lebanon gas fields? Well, Israel feels, because the United States has given it permission, to, that it can do whatever it wants to. It can uh, annex parts of Syria. It can annex the West Bank if it wants to. It's hesitating on that. But it, it, it's fully annexing it, certainly by uh, by the illegal um, settlements. So it's the same thing with the oil fields. It, feel, it wants them, it feels it can take them. It will justify it saying we need this for our national security. Everything Israel does, every crime against humanity, every violation of international law, it does in the name of its uh, national security. And the United States supports it in all these things. But it, we're seeing the same thing with the oil fields in Lebanon. Uh, Lebanon, however, is not going to roll over and allow this to happen. What are the options that Lebanon has to challenge the act, the actions of Israel? Are we looking at the possibility of another military front here? Yes, we definitely are. Um, both, of course, Israel has nuclear weapons, uh, but Lebanon, although is in some, uh, it certainly has it has its challenges, but also has has a military that is strong. It has the support of its people for the most part. Again, there's opposition everywhere, but uh, it would be, it would not be a quick war. It would not be an easy war. It would certainly be a deadly and disastrous war if it happens. Hopefully, uh, the Israeli government will have the sense not to do this. However, that's that's hoping for a lot. Well, the other thing is this, and in, in the event that that happens, it would. It, I mean, it's a there's a. A, a good possibility or a strong possibility that it would draw other, you know, Muslim groups in the area. If they saw, uh, you know, Israel at war, there would be other groups that would be, you know, volunteering to uh, act against Israel. And they could open themselves up for a lot, a lot of tr- problems. And we would see the end of, uh, or at least uh, uh, the weakening, the great weakening of the so-called Abraham Accords, because once Israel looks vulnerable. Those countries that have allied with it, that are Muslim countries, are not going to support it. Yeah, and additionally, these Muslim countries, if the um, Israel is killing Muslims and particularly, you know, bombing areas, which as they are wont to do, bombing areas with, with civilians, it, it's going to be extremely difficult for the leaders of those countries to keep their people at bay and, you know, to even maintain power. About 30 seconds. Yeah, there's been, there was tremendous opposition in those countries to the so-called Abraham Accords. And if Israel starts killing Muslims in these other countries, uh, the people are going to rise up. And the government, in order to, to stay in power, are going to have to uh, oppose Israel and oppose Israeli action. You are listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon with my host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. 
U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has returned from his Africa trip without achieving any of his apparent goals. Also, we discussed the empire, the U.S. empire's hegemonic goals regarding Russia and China. Dan Lazar is our guest. He's an investigative journalist. He's an author of many books, including America's Undeclared War. Dan Lazar, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Uh, Thanks for having me. Well, we got some great articles to talk about today. The first one is by a really smart guy, Dr. Jeffrey G. Sachs, and he writes, it is past time that the U.S. recognized the true sources of security, internal social cohesion and responsible cooperation with the rest of the world rather than the illusion of hegemony. But here's the problem, Dan. The U.S. ain't looking for security. It's just looking for hegemony. Dan Lazar, your thoughts? I, I, I totally agree. I mean, uh, I think that the, the, the fallacy that, that people like uh, Zach's have uh, is they assume that the, that the U.S. empire is kind of rational and, and plans long term and is thoughtful about how the world works. But it's just not the case. I mean, the U.S. is interested only in hegemony. It wants to start, it wants, to, wants to control the, the world to the greatest extent possible, and it wants to drive out of power any possible challenger or, or alternative. Uh, and that's what we see. That's why the U.S. is challenging Russia. That's why the U.S. is ch- challenging uh, China. I mean, it's like, you know, it's like one of those old Westerns, you know, this town ain't actually for, for the two of them. You know, what's also interesting to me in the uh, second paragraph of this piece, the, the essential narrative of the West is built into U.S. national security strategy. The core U.S. idea is that China and Russia are implacable foes and they're determined to make economies less free and less fair to grow their militaries and to control information and data. Well, determined to make economies less free and fair, China is canceling debt. China is not imposing onerous and usurious interest rates on foreign countries that borrow money through the World Bank and the IMF to grow their militaries. When you look at the percentage of military spending by China and Russia compared to GNP, it pales in comparison to the United States. So if Sachs is right, and if this is what the United States is thinking, all they got to do is look at the data and and they'll find out that they're wrong. Dan? The U.S. doesn't look at the data. I mean, it, it sort of knows what it knows. It knows it is a force for good. And anyone who disagrees, therefore, must be banned and must be banished from the four corners of the globe. I mean, that's what the U.S. knows. It's like a computer program with the same instructions repeated over and over again. Um, and it, it's, it's very dangerous. I think, yes, actually, I think Sachs discusses this uh, in his article. It's very dangerous. It's very simplistic and it's very dangerous. Um, and yet, the the country is just marching in lockstep behind this, uh, this, this point of view. Well, the other thing, Dan, I think, is if we really get down to the reality, and that is that the U.S.'s actual intentions are so malicious that they have to hide them that it's all a lie. So if we talk about information and data that they have, the problem with that is they got information and data, but if they actually told the truth, we want to run the world, we're lying, we're 
We're supporting Nazis. We're supporting ISIS and any kind of malicious group we can around the world so that we can control everything. We have an information war, but the information war is against our own people so we can mislead them from knowing the truth about what we're doing. You know, if if you see it through that lens, it changes everything, that this is all a lie. And it's actually terribly malicious what they're trying to do, Dan. Well, yes. I mean, I, I think that you know, people often think that, that domestic policy and foreign policy are two separate things, but they really aren't. They really are just two sides of the same coin. So, so look at America's policies at home. I mean, I mean, I mean America is a country in deep trouble. Its, econ- its economy is not working for 98% of the population. Um, its people are really hurting. Real wages are declining. Environmental standards are, are plummeting. Uh, global warming is wreaking havoc. Cities are in ruins. that has the highest incarceration. You know, I can go on and on and on. But but yes, that doesn't mean that they that doesn't mean the government in Washington is therefore open to more alternatives. It means actually the opposite. The worse thing get things get, the more the government tries to to tighten its grip. And the same thing's true internationally. I mean, the more the international economy goes downhill, the more Washington wants to deepen and extend its its dictatorship. I mean, we're sitting on the edge of a of a major third world debt explosion. And yet everything the U.S. is doing is making it worse. And I think a lot of that has to do with those that are truly in control of policy and direction and the and what interests are truly being looked after or uh, catered to. So, for example, Boeing CEO Dave Calhoun said back in 2020 when asked about who does Boeing prefer, Trump or Biden? And Dave Calhoun said, doesn't matter who wins, we're going to do just fine. <laughs> and that, that, Boeing, that. <laughs> their defense unit generated $6.6 billion in sales in one quarter. So it's, it's not as though there are, that, that, that Chuck Schumer is, is arguing with, uh, what's his name from Kentucky? Uh, Rand Paul. Rand Paul or the minority leader, whatever his name is, Mitch McConnell, yeah. that they're having that they're having some honest ideological debate on the direction of the world. No, they know who needs to get paid and they're creating the scenarios to see to it that those individuals or that those entities get paid. It's almost it's almost like George Bush saying, oh, well, we were li- we, we had bad intel when we went and invaded Iraq. No, you set up an entity in the Pentagon called the Office of Special Programs that spun the data and the intel in the direction you wanted it to go. So that's my point. Well, yes, I think that's absolutely true. I think the the problem is in this country is that there is no debate. Uh, The political system is so dysfunctional that uh, that debate is really minimal along very narrow lines. No one in the squad, for example, has said a word in opposition to the war in a word in any way critical of the war in the Ukraine. They have not raised a peep. They they didn't say a word about Nancy Pelosi's trip to uh, to Taiwan. 
No one did. There was complete unanimity. There's no debate. The press is completely, you know, monotone in terms of political ideology. Um, so, so, you know, so, so therefore there's no debate over these things. There's no accountability. And, and Biden can behave as wildly irresponsibly as he wishes, and no one will speak up in opposition. Dan, let me put a couple of things to, together for you and get, get your thoughts. Number one, last, ju- last June, the U.S. Congress passed a bill that was supposedly be countering ty- China's technology. It was a $250 billion giveaway to technology corporations. Two weeks ago, um, they passed a similar bill called the Chips Countering China Tech Bill, uh, bill $280 billion. That's $530 billion, half a trillion dollars. Then another $40 billion in, 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 in April to uh, Ukraine. Another $13.6 billion Ukraine. You see the kind of numbers? We're getting close to $600 billion, $850 billion. We're now at almost $1.5 trillion for war, right? Now listen to this. This is from yesterday. Ukrainian MPs decided to increase their pay by 70 percent. The United States is paying the the Ukrainian parliament's uh, salaries and they just voted to give themselves a 70 percent raise. One last thing. The day before classes are scheduled to start, teachers in Ohio's largest school system say they won't end their strike without improvements to what they described as dilapidated schools where a lack of heating and air conditioning has led to miserable classroom environments. Oh, by the way, Congress just ended free lunches for kids. So we can't afford heating and air conditioning. We can't afford a a, a stinking ham sandwich, a, a cookie and a glass of milk for the kids. But we got a half a trillion or one and a half trillion dollars. We're nothing more, Dan, than a military machine with a an impoverished country. Dan Lazar. Yeah, yeah, that was that was well put. That was really well well put together. You're absolutely correct. I mean the uh, and but that's what always would happen. I mean when when imperialism reaches this stage of decadence, you know the, you know the, the definition of, of a fanatic is somebody who who. We doubles his efforts when he's forgotten what he's even even you know fighting about, you know. So the in the U.S. The, I mean, more the more pointless this whole thing becomes, the more the militant America becomes, the more resources it throws into its military, and the more pugnacious and bellicose it becomes in its behavior. And meanwhile, the fact that social conditions are deteriorating rapidly back home and you have a society, you know, which which 18 year old boys shoot up classrooms or supermarkets just for the sheer just, just to express their own agony and blow people away. When you have when you have a society like this, uh, it just I mean, it becomes secondary. The only thing that matters is how much money goes to the military, how much money goes to, to Raytheon and Boeing, uh, you know, and, and how how big you grow the military and it's, it's contrary to the direct economic and social interests of the great mass of the population. Blinken returns empty-handed from Africa tour. This is from Popular Resistance. He traveled to three countries seeking to undermine the influence of China and Russia. Your thoughts, because based upon the response that he received, it really appears as though this was a, this was a fool's errand. And he goes to the continent 
telling countries that the United States supports them while there are six or seven coups that have taken place over the last 18 months. It's sort of the same thing, but the, um, but the, uh, the, 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 the African nations like Kenya, for example, or Rwanda, you know, it's no one saying they are, their governments are any great shakes, but they are, they are sick and tired of the U S imposing increasingly destructive policies on them. And therefore they are very happy to see other centers of power arise in the world, you know, Russia or China. I mean, anything which, which, which puts an end to this, you know, to this U.S. monopolistic dictatorship, to the, from their point of view, allows them to breathe a bit more easily. So that's just what's going on. That's, that's why Blinken ran into a stone wall. Everyone's glad to see the U.S. knocked off its post. We've been talking with Dan Lazar. He's an investigative journalist and author of a number of books, including America's Undeclared War. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Venezuela and Colombia appoint ambassadors to reestablish diplomatic relations. Also, a U.S. judge has entered an $8.5 billion settlement against Venezuela. Joining us now to discuss this and more, we have Ricardo Vaz. He's a political analyst and editor at VenezuelaAnalysis.com. Welcome, Ricardo. Hey, thanks as always for inviting me. Oh, thank you for coming on. Venezuela President Nicolas Maduro named former Minister Felix Placienza as the new ambassador to Bogota as part of efforts to restore diplomatic relations following the inauguration of Gustavo Petro as president of Colombia. I think we think here at uh, we've discussed this. We've been covering this here on the critical hour. And we think that this is uh, that 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 uh, hopefully Ideally, an anti-imperialist government in Colombia are going to make a big difference in the overall dynamics, the geopolitical dynamics of um, South America, and in particular, the ability of the U.S. to utilize Colombia as a staging ground for um, a dirty war against Venezuela. Your thoughts, Ricardo Vaz? Yeah, that's a great point. And all the signs up to now have been very promising from, from Petro. If we look, for example, at his inauguration speech, he made quite a point of emphasizing that the, con- the, the continent needs to unite. He didn't explicitly mention that they wanted to unite against uh, the U.S. empire, but that's, that's kind of implied. And when it, when it comes to Venezuela, all the signs have also been very positive from the appointment of ambassadors that you mentioned. There have also been lots of talks and negotiations to reopen the border, this this very long border that has been closed for many years that's going to benefit the populations on both sides. So up until now, the tone has been very friendly. Guaido has been left, uh, the self-proclaimed quote-unquote interim (laughs) president, Juan Guaido, is completely out of the picture. So everything is very promising. However, uh, we shouldn't underestimate the challenges that Petro is going to face. I mean, he still has a dozen U.S. military bases in in his territory to deal with. 
So we should we should be hopeful, but at the same time be aware that he's going to face multiple challenges and, and multiple obstacles along the way as he tries to implement a policy that will put the Colombian people and Latin American people first and not U.S. interests in the region. Talk about this other uh, step that Petro took uh, to restore institutional ties with the return of Mano Meros, a, a subsidiary of Venezuela's state-owned Pequevin to the hands of the Maduro government. Uh, what is all that about? Yeah, that's that's very very significant. This is a, a company that produces fertilizers, and it's very it has a, a very big importance in in Colombia. Uh, this 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 uh, coffee production and palm oil production is very reliant on, on the outputs from this company Monomeros. So when this uh, interim government circus began in 2019. One of the consequences was that assets that, you know, Venezuelan state assets that were abroad were seized and placed in the hands of this Guaido band of, of thieves and, and corrupt idiots. And basically, even in, in their own words, because they then start to betray each other, they use this company Monomeros as a, a quote unquote, a piñata. So they were just looking to get quick, uh, get-rich-quick schemes for their friends, and, and this company was basically driven to the ground. It was brought under the control of the Colombian state. And one of the, the, the early promises from Petro is that he was going to return this company to the rightful owner, which is the Venezuelan state, in order to have it reactivated and continue to supply the, the Colombian agriculture market with this important input. So uh, as far as I understand, this has this is this is ongoing. Venezuela has already appointed a new board of directors. So hopefully this, this company can again fulfill its role in it, and it's going to be good for both countries. Colombia is going to get the desperately needed fertilizers. I mean, remember that with the, the war in Ukraine and the sanctions against Russia, there's a, a desperate need for fertilizers. The prices are going through the roof. And it's also going to be good for Venezuela because it's another source of income. Dan Kavalik writes. On August 7, 2022, Gustavo Petro and his running mate, Francia Marquez, were inaugurated as the president and vice president of the Republic of Colombia. This was one of the most historic events in Latin America for at least a century. For the first time since the liberation of Colombia from Spain by Simón Bolívar, Colombia now had leaders who promised to radically transform Colombia and with it all of Latin America. Your thoughts on that, Ricardo Vaz? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I'm, I'm very happy that Dan Kovalik got to witness this. He's a good friend of mine, a good friend of Venezuela analysis as well. And he has a, a very long history of really excellent and admirable work in Colombia defending uh, activists and, and trade unionists who have come under all sorts of violence, which is, of course, sponsored by the United States. So I, I, I'm very happy that he got to witness this uh, historic moment when Colombia got to inaugurate the first leftist president in its history. I mean, it, it seems almost uh, unimaginable to say it out loud, but, but that, that's, that's what happened. And it was very inspiring. I have, I have some friends who were there as well, and they were also very touched. And the, the ceremony had a very uh, remarkable moment when Petro, who had just taken office, asked that the sword of Bolivar, the independence hero of, of Latin America, or at least this part of Latin America, be brought to the stage. And this had actually been denied 
by uh, the outgoing president, Ivan Duque, a very uh, loyal puppet to the United States. So this, this was a very remarkable moment, going back to what we were saying in the beginning, in this context of pursuing Latin American integration, Bolivar is the figure that kind of embodies that. So it was, uh, it was great to see that uh, Petro did not just uh, you know, say, say the great things that he did, but he also had this very, very symbolic uh, moment of, of bringing back the sword of Bolivar. In this piece, uh, Dan talks about some of the uh, officials that participated or were there for the inauguration of Petro. And uh, he talks about because the U.S. sent a low-level delegation headed by Samantha Power, the head of USAID, the U.S. delegation wasn't even announced from the podium and was not seated on the stage. Therefore, the crowd never got a chance to react to the guests from the U.S. So it, it's almost as though by sending this type of delegation headed by Samantha Power and understanding the role that USAID plays in fomenting coups in countries, the United States probably would have been better off not sending anybody. Yeah, I mean, this was their way of finding a middle ground between uh, sending one, sending a, a high-level official and not sending anyone at all. The U.S. is basically trying to calibrate how it's going to try and contain the petrol government, see what kind of obstacles they can they can throw in this way. And it's interesting that, that uh, Kovalik mentions this in the piece, that any U.S. official, given the atmosphere, would likely have been booed uh, when, when introduced. So... In, in, in that sense, Washington was probably trying to avoid this kind of public embarrassment, which would have been <laughs> very well deserved. So the, the question now is, is how, how the U.S. is going to react. I mean, the fact that the, the head of USAID was there is already suggestive that these, these kind of soft power initiatives are going to try and, and wield their influence. We've already started to see these very familiar stories that oh, Petro wants to suppress press freedom and the usual angles that are used to attack anyone who is going to challenge U.S. interests, especially in Latin America. One of the things I think that's important about this is that they brought the sword of Simone Bolivar out. Um, that was part of the ceremony. Of course, the crowd went wild and the king of Spain was there. And apparently he wasn't real happy about the sword of Simone Bolivar, who fought to actually free um, South America from Spanish rule. But um, I also think it's tremendously symbolic, not just for Colombia, because Colombia being such a stalwart, such a bull arc of, you know, U.S. power and hegemony in the region for Colombia to turn away from U.S. imperialism is kind of similar to freeing the Latin Americans from the Spanish. So I think it's very timely and appropriate for this particular symbolism. Your thoughts, Ricardo? Indeed, it was it was very uh, significant and even humorous, the, the role played by the King of Spain. It seems like even to have Hundred years later, the, the Spanish haven't gone over the haven't gotten over the independence of, of their former colonies in, in Latin America, and in fact, he, he would have gone unnoticed if he had just gotten up like everybody else. But he decided to to make a point, a very ridiculous point at that, and staying seated instead of just trying to get unnoticed in what was really a, a demonstration of anti-colonial spirit. It's also very interesting. Uh, ben mentioned 
mentioned this in the piece, the, there's a kind of symbolism between Petro and the Sword of Bolivar, because Petro, if we recall, was part of this uh, guerrilla movement, the M19, which was operative for some 15 years. And perhaps their most high profile action during that time was that they, so they stole the Sword of Bolivar <laughs> as a symbolic gesture to say that, you know, this, we'll return the sword once the Colombian people are, are free. And so in that sense, uh, uh, it comes full circle, but with, with Petro, inaugurated president, bringing the sword to the stage. Your site has a story. U.S. judge upholds ConocoPhillips' $8.5 billion award. The Maduro government said the ruling violates international law and seeks to consummate the delivery of Venezuelan assets to, to foreign powers. Talk about the significance of this ruling. Yeah, I mean, everyone is outraged here in Venezuela. And in fact, all, all the signs point to self-proclaimed interim President Juan Guaido and his actions. In fact, ConocoPhillips won this ruling by default because, believe it or not, and this is going to sound like a joke, for two years, the, the Guaido team has not shown up in court. So remember that because Guaido is quote-unquote recognized, he's the one who has to defend Venezuela's interests in U.S. courts. And here you have this massive settlement that was awarded by the, the World Bank's uh, International Center for Settlement of Investor Disputes. Uh, this, this kind of arbitration tribunals that always rule in favor of corporation. It goes back to the nationalization of Conoco assets here in Venezuela in 2007. And now Conoco wants to enforce this award. And the, the Guaido uh, administration somehow found, didn't find it relevant to present itself in court and op oppose something that is huge. I mean, 8.5 billion is no joke. And actually imperils Venezuela's most important asset abroad, which is also under Guaido control, which is CITCO. Well, and and uh, uh, the other thing I think is, and, and I think we should end out with this, this clearly demonstrates, this court ruling, why so many countries in the global south are ready to join with China and Russia and Iran and of these other countries and India for a new economic world order, a new currency, a new system, because there's just uh, a system of U.S. hegemony recently, you know, uh, uh, the, the Brits will not give Venezuela their gold, etc. Um, your thoughts on that? We got a minute and a half. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's there's an entire architecture that comes after the end of World War II with the World, the world Bank and the International Monetary Fund. That's perhaps something that it's euphemistically referred to this international rules-based order, but in fact, it's just a, a number of institutions that may seem very neutral and very technocratic. But in the end, they are all mechanisms to just enforce the interests of the United States and 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 also the interests of of multinational corporations, which and those interests tend to align. So this contrasts very heavily with the a recent piece that caught my eye that uh, China actually forgave a number of laws loans to low-income African countries in a way to kind of boost longer-term development plans. And so that's uh, a very stark contrast with the U.S. justice system and the World Bank, uh, while we're at it, which are just uh, tools in a way to enforce the, the interests of U.S. corporations at the expense of uh, global South countries like Venezuela and the Venezuelan people. We've been talking with Ricardo Ricardo Vaz. He's a political analyst and editor at a great website you should check out. It's called it's VenezuelaAnalysis.com. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. 
We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Bloomberg News has branded Europe a third-world economy due to the devastation of European sanctions on Russia. Also, they argue that the energy crisis in the U.K. will likely be worse than the crash of 2008. Joining us to discuss this and more, we have Nico House. He's a political activist, an independent journalist, and a podcaster, and all-around smart guy, Nico House. Welcome back to The Critical Hour. Glad to be back. We thanks for having me. The fallout of the sanctions imposed on Russia over the conflict in Ukraine has turned Europe into the third world of Western economies. A senior contributor to Forbes Forbes magazine has claimed these days the European stock market is the worst in the Western world, underperforming the U.S. by 10 basis points, according to Ken Raposa in his article on Tuesday. Nico, eh, things ain't looking so good for Europe these days. Yeah, uh, karma, man. Karma is a very, very disloyal, fickle lady, I'm telling you. And to be quite honest, um, what's most bizarre about this is this is really an indictment of just how much Europeans don't even care about their own people while they're simultaneously trying to convince us that they care enough about Ukraine to literally sacrifice their entire country or entire continent just to send weapons there, uh, which is obviously leading to the sanctions. Like, that's what is wild to me. Is they know. All they have to do is just stop funding this war. That's all it would take. I feel like uh, Putin and Russia in general have been very, very, uh, they've been very judicious. They've been very understanding, and they've made their demands, which are quite simple, very clear. But I think it also outlines just how much Europe itself, the EU specifically, they're not calling their own shots. Because I guarantee you every elected official would probably want to keep their office. But when you're not the one... Uh, giving your own orders, whether you're going to do things that, that would be that would conflict with your actual goals of getting reelected in this particular case, if you're about to have the worst recession since the 2008 recession, all because of your decisions, you would think you would, you know, change course. And I think it was Gerhard Schroeder who said the simple thing to do in terms of the gas issue was just turn on Nord Stream 2. But somehow that I guess they can't figure out where to on on button is you know what was weird too how they suggested hey maybe they should break uh international trading laws to over to reroute the sanctions that's what the guy in forbes suggested like it was normal and in this uh, rt piece the most significant headwind for such a state of affairs has been the russian sanctions on energy as punishment for its war with ukraine those restrictions, quote, set off a massive commodity price spike that hurts the European economy the most. It's amazing to me, Nico, how folks who are supposed, who we would think are fairly intelligent could Mm -hmm. either overlook something like this, not consider something like this, or ignore the data before they make the moves that they've made? Well, they're ignoring it. I don't think that they're overlooking it. I, th- I think that, um, you know, a lot of times we can blame things on incompetence, but uh, the coordination that's gone into this particular uh, war or this conflict by all of the NATO in- uh, entities would let you know this is a coordinated effort, and they would just consider uh, people literally going to be freezing their asses off, excuse my language, in the wintertime, they're, go- they're collateral damage because that's how NATO does business, and that's how they've always done business. And they're they're doing a cost benefit analysis, and they feel like this is the and, I, and like from their perspective, strategically, they're absolutely right to feel this, this. This is the time. If you don't do this right now, if you don't get Ukraine into NATO, 
after you just accidentally made Russia the number one eco- economy in the world, there is no other opportunity. That's done. Everything that happens from here on out, it will be Russia's game to lose. And let's be honest, they, they don't look like they're going to lose anytime soon. It's the same country that helped win two world wars, okay? <laughs> they, I think they're going to be okay. And Putin seems to be planning in advance so well. He's just been so calculated that you have to, just from, uh, like I said, just military and economic strategy, you got to appreciate it. Because he has, he, he just has all the keys. It says here in this piece, if there's no ceasefire in Ukraine soon, chances are that Europe becomes so desperate this winter and supply chain so stretch that it has no choice but to relax some sanctions or convince non-EU partners to relabel and transship Russian commodities. That that being said, while Boris Johnson goes to the Ukraine and says, this is not the time to advance some friends, flimsy plan for negotiation. Yeah, like, but the, is that legal, what they're suggesting? That's, I, I'm curious, I don't know, but that sounds like it's an illegal workaround, correct? Did, I would did he think just so. The finesse? Did he just, did he just, I mean, he said, take the, pack, the, the stuff that is being sanctioned and just repackage it, like with a different label, basically. That sounds like it's illegal. Because isn't that the point of sanctions? So you don't give the money to the country that you're trying to sanction? Because either way, Russia in that particular case would get the money. But that also just lets you know, like, this is how they normally operate when they're doing business. They can figure out ways when it's time for the, for the politicians to try and win office, to try and, you know, cover their butts from the actions that they, that they were guilty of. They always find workarounds. But you or I, you know, we're, we're one step away from having the IRS pull up to our doors with, with Glocks. You know, like that's that's the, the level of accountability versus the level of accountability we face is ridiculous. Yeah. And uh, now let me ask you this. If you look at the meltdown of the European economy, you know, you and I and Wilmer, none of us are economists. And it's glaringly obvious. We've been talking about this when they first did it. And it was like obvious. Hey, look, they're wiping out European economy, the European economy. Mm-hmm. If we can figure it out. I would suspect that the people in charge can figure it out, which would lead one to believe that maybe it's not an accident. That when John Bolton wrote in his book uh, a year year or so ago that in the Trump administration, they saw the EU – right behind China as a threat to the U.S. economy and U.S. hegemony, that perhaps that they actually plan to wipe out the EU's economy. Oh, wow. And that uh, perhaps it was just like, look, hey, we can kill two birds with one stone. We can get Russia, hopefully. But if we don't get Russia, we'll sure as, hell, uh, sure, sure as heck knock the EU's economy out. What do you think? Am I being a conspiracy theorist to think that maybe this was a plan? We've done that before. So in order to try to crush Russia's economy in World War One, what we did was we made we scapegoat Germany all the way leading up to it. And even though the Tsar and the Kaiser were cousins, we forced Russia into a political decision that they didn't want to make, but they had to, which was to ally with the Allied powers. So what that ultimately set up for was a drained economy that allowed for the U.S. and the U.K. to pay out the Bolshevik Revolution, to fund the Bolshevik Revolution, so that we can then, of course, try to take over during transitions of power. We prayed Trotsky. Unfortunately for them, Stalin was a—they they, they didn't calculate that variable. But we've allied before with the, in, with the goal entirely of wiping them out so that we're, there's nobody else competing with us, so that we don't have to 
we, we were in control of the whole the whole Western Europe relationship until very recently because our economies became so symbiotic. But now it's becoming a problem. But at least if you don't get rid so now you don't have to compete with both Russia and the EU. You were hoping to take out both, but you might just take out one. And that might be good enough for the U.S., unfortunately. Garland, since you mentioned economists, this just came to mind. Top economist uh, Larry Summers, in responding to Joe Biden's student loan bailout plan, says, Biden bailing out student debt is going to cause incredible inflation. And the way that Biden should solve the problem is to just have the students file for bankruptcy. So that's that's what economists do for you. Some of them anyway. Some of them anyway. Listen, we, we have a lot of uh, a lot of PhD economists in this country, right? And yet somehow, some way we still end up in a recession or a depression every ten to twelve years. Okay, clearly they're not as good at their jobs as their degree would tell you they are. So <laughs> I don't really have much I will put much stock into what an economist tells you. <laughs> Here's another uh interesting article. You you UK energy crisis may be worse than two thousand eight crash. Surging utility bills threaten to sink more than half of British households into debt. Here we have the Brits saying, yes, we're gonna send more weapons to Ukraine. We gotta do more for Ukraine. We gotta help Ukraine. Uh Bojo just went to Kiev and said, don't accept any of these peace uh, agreements that they're putting forward. Got to keep this forth. forth. We got to keep this thing going. One thing is obvious here, Nico, and that is that the leadership of these Western countries has decoupled from its constituency, that the people in the leadership absolutely could care less if every one of the people in their country starves straight to death and freeze. As long as they move forward with this crazy neocon project to harass Russia and or China. Nico. Yeah. I mean, and it's also, I think, uh, I mean, who, we, we don't pay their bills, right? Let's keep it real. We don't pay their bills. They, when you have a sovereign currency, you pay, basically either put a digit or, you know, Lockheed Martin walks up to you and they pay your bills now, right? You can only have one master, really. And it, at this point, it's become evident we don't have, and I don't, I can't speak for Europe's system as much, um, but I can say confidently, at least just generally in the West, we don't have secure enough election systems where any politician truly feels the pressure of his corruption uh, being punished at the at the voting booth. And where they do have some secure election systems, you like in a lot of places in Europe, what do you have? You have smear campaigns like the ones they run against, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Corbett, Jeremy Corbett. And then uh, how many people believe it just because like, that's how deep the corruption runs within our electoral system. So when you can't hold them accountable at the booth, you can't hold their money accountable. And it even seems that I think we will both agree, even D.C. has a different set of laws they operate by versus how we operate by, considering James Comey was like, oh, no, it doesn't matter if she broke the law. It was the intention behind it. Now, Garland, I know your career. I know you know damn well intention has nothing to do with whether or not you're guilty of a crime. Okay? So it might control the amount of time you get, but that's about it. So there doesn't seem to be a way to hold them accountable, and it looks like somebody else is writing the checks for them. And so this is the result you get. And I feel like this is the most obvious conclusion you can come up with. I don't know what the solution is, unfortunately. What about the narrative here? EU faces winter of great suffering. This is according to the Spanish Minister of Defense. She claims that Russian President Putin is already throttling the supply of gas to the continent, apparently referring to the reduction in deliveries by Russian energy giant Gazprom. But, Nico, 
I thought that there were sanctions against Russia imposed upon Russia by the West. This makes it appear as though Putin woke up yesterday and said, you know what I'm going to do today? I think I'm going to make the continent freeze. Yeah, yeah, that's what that's what I, I, I distinctively remember. Uh, we're going to sanction Russian gas because they don't want to pay for it or they don't want the money in U.S. dollars or euros anymore. At the, of course, why would you? We want it in rubles. And you're like, oh, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to make it anyway. And then I don't know what happened after that. Oh, that's right. Saudi Arabia and Iran gave you the middle finger. So the country that could have helped you gave you the middle finger. U.S. has its own problems, so they can't help you. And now it's like, oh, man, those sanctions by Russia. Russia hasn't imposed any sanctions. Well, they, they've done some sanctions now, but, like, nothing to do with the gas. They told them, we'll keep doing business with you. Just pay us in rubles. Y'all decided not to do business with Russia, not the other way around. It just the sanctions didn't work exactly how you expected them to. Well, you know, it reminds me, I was on a riding on a, on the the bus to Washington one time, and I mean to New York, and the bus stopped at a, a rest stop, and the, the the bus driver said, "All right." You got to be back on this bus because we're leaving in 15 minutes. And there was two ladies that looked at him and they said, but we do, we want to sp- stay longer than 15 minutes. We don't want to come back. And the bus driver said, you ain't got to come, come back in 15 minutes. But this bus is leaving in 15 minutes. If you ain't on it, that's up to you. That was the way it went with rubles. You don't have to get gas from Russia. But if you want it, you got to pay in rubles. If you want the, if you want the convenience, you got to pay in rubles. And I feel like, first of all, the U.S. would only, like, if that was the U.S. requesting that or the E requesting that, there would be no issue whatsoever. They would be like, of course, why wouldn't they? It's their currency and they're dominant. So when Russia does it, it's a problem? Like, they could have straight up told you, nah, we're not doing no business with you. They could have did that and still would have been fine, clearly. And y'all decided, no, they're going to take their kindness for weakness and, and, and play chicken with a country who literally just, grows natural gas out the ground. Okay, like, good luck with that one. <laughs> We've been talking with Nico House, political activist, independent journalist, and podcaster. You've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon, we hope you are informed and enlightened. We look forward to talking with you all tomorrow right here on Radio Sputnik. Be safe, peace, and blessings. We are out. 